Good morning, everyone. Can you turn with me, please, to the book of James? And as you are searching for that portion of God's Word, I want to begin with a very simple question to attune our minds to what we're going to hear from James uh, this morning. The question is simply this, are you a religious person? Do you consider yourself to be a religious man, to be a religious woman? That word religion has fallen on hard times in our day. It is a very negative word. And so I'm going to hazard a guess that some, many perhaps of us, would rather not be described as a religious person. I want to submit to you, however, that if we're defining the word properly, uh, faithfully, in accordance to how it is used in Scripture, uh, you want to be a religious man. And you want to be a religious woman. You want to be religious. And James describes this religion for us. And in the very first chapter of his book, he goes into some detail to make sure we are clear as to the nature of religion. And his description of the, relig- the nature of religion really begins in verse 17 of chapter 1. And it begins where we must always begin, uh, with God. And he celebrates the glorious fact that every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift that we receive descends from above. From whom? From the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. Uh, This is the starting point for true religion, a good and bountiful God. What does this God do? James goes on to tell us in the 18th verse, he makes it clear that this good God births his people. He causes us to be born again. By the word of truth. And so there we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There we were as unresponsive as a corpse to all stimuli. But by this book, this book that is like dew, the morning dew. This book that is like rain that falls upon the earth and replenishes the earth. Uh, This book was the means by which the spirit of God caused us to come to life, to be born again. And then James goes on and tells us in verses 19 through 25 that not only does this good God cause us to be born again by the word of truth, not only does he birth us by the scriptures, he makes us grow by the scriptures. He causes us to grow in Christ-likeness. He causes us to grow in his image, in righteousness and in benevolence and in all of these things that characterize this good God. And then James, in his description of the nature of true religion, brings it all to a head. And he says, look, this good God, this good God who births us by his word, this good God who grows us by his word, uh, this same God produces fruit in us. And in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, he identifies three pieces of fruit. A bridled tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life. You enter chapter 2, 
You read the remainder of his book through to the end of chapter 5. And just about, not quite entirely, but just about everything he goes on to say in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5 relate back to those three pieces of fruit. You can take just about everything he says and it will fit under one of those three umbrellas. A bridled tongue, a compassionate heart, an unstained life, true religion in the sight of God. We're entering the fifth chapter today. We're going to look at the first six verses, and this particular text fits under that piece of fruit. Which one? A compassionate heart. Follow as I read in James 5 verse 1. Come now, come now you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Pretty heavy stuff. Very weighty stuff. James begins in verse 1 with a very clear, a very clear cry. It's a denunciation. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The denunciation begs three fairly obvious, straightforward questions. And this is how we're going to approach these verses. Question number one is this. We need to be clear on it. Who are the rich? Who's he talking about? Come now, you rich. It seems pretty general, doesn't it? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The first thing we need to be clear on, the first thing we want to know is this. Of whom is James speaking? If you have more than $10,000 in savings, do you classify as rich? I don't know. There's no footnote. If you have more than $50,000, are you rich? In savings? Are you mortgage free? Does that make you rich? If you earn six figures annually, does that put you in the category of rich? If you've earned your first million, are you rich? If you're in the so called 1%, that's what they call them, right? I'm not sure how you get in. I'm not even sure what the cutoff is, but there's a 1%, right? I know I'm not in it. If you happen to be in the 1%, does that make you rich? Uh, Who are the rich? I may very well have shared this with you before. Please please forgive me if it was fairly recent and my memory is going, but 
I recall it's coming up on 25 years ago in this little town in southern Angola, Lubongo, where Allison and I lived for a year. I, I can recall that uh, there was no garbage pickup. Uh, we were in Africa. And so how'd you, how'd you get rid of your household garbage? Plastic bags. You walked out your front door and you maybe 200 yards to the end of the street and there was a little dump. And that's where you threw your garbage. And once every couple of months, maybe trucks came and kind of ground it into the ground and hauled some of it away to somewhere else. But that was what you, that was garbage disposal. So, okay. So the first time we had to get rid of our, our garbage, I had a couple of little plastic bags and walked out the front door and made my way to the, the dump and just kind of threw them in there. And five or six little boys, maybe 11 or 12 years of age, came out of nowhere. I mean, out of nowhere. Grabbed these bags, started to wave them over their heads, and ran off cheering as if they had just won the lottery. At that moment, I realized something. I am wealthy. I am wealthy. I am among the wealthy. At that time, I don't think Allison and I had $200 between us. That's 200 Canadian. That's about 50 cents American. I mean, it is just the Canadian dollar these days is not doing well at all, but what do we care? I had maybe 50 cents to my name. There we were. But at that moment, as I saw these six little boys running away with my garbage, I realized I am among the wealthy. When we wrestle with this question, who are the rich, we must think firstly, historically, and we must think secondly, globally. When we think historically and when we think globally, guess what, folks, in this room right now, we are the wealthiest people who have ever lived on the face of this earth, in this room. Right now, we are the wealthiest people. I don't care if you make 40000 400000 We are the 1% when you think globally and when we think historically. Is James talking to us? Maybe. Maybe. I want you to notice five things concerning these people. Five things so that we're very clear when it comes to the rich, uh, those whom James has in view. The first thing is this. The first thing is this. They're unbelievers. These are unbelievers. How do I know that? Skip down to verse 7. Be patient, therefore. Therefore. That word relates what? Verse 7 to what? To what? The preceding verses. The first six verses. So he's drawing a contrast. In light of what I've said in the first six verses, be patient, therefore, brothers. I'm now speaking to brothers, the brethren, in contrast to those whom I've just been addressing the first six verses. He goes on, he uses the expression again in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. He uses it again in verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. He's going to use it again for good measure in verse 12, but above all, my brothers. As so I put to you, in the first six verses, he's not speaking of whom? The brothers. Uh, this is reinforced by the simple fact that what we have in these verses is what is known linguistically as a prophetic lament. A prophetic lament. That is when a prophet proclaims or announces God's denunciation, usually preceded by that little word, woe, 
Woe, woe, woe to you. And you go back into the book of Isaiah, it's very common. All the prophets, it's very common. It's very common in the Psalms. As a matter of fact, in our study of the Psalms to this point, we've considered at least two laments, prophetic laments. It's common in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus in Luke 10, what is it he says? A woe to you, city of Chorazin. Is it Chorazin? The city of Bethsaida. Why? Because if the miracles that were performed in your midst, if the signs that were performed in your midst had been performed in the cities of Tyre and Sidon, historical cities, if what was done in your midst, what, what was done in your midst had been done in their midst, they would have repented. But you have not repented. Therefore, woe, it is coming judgment. Now, here's what interest, is interesting. The Lord Jesus does not declare that denunciation in the city of Chorazin or the city of Beth Bethsaida. He does not make that denunciation in their audience, in their hearing. He is condemning unbelievers, but he actually utters the denunciation in whose presence? The disciples. And so what he says, this woe, this prophetic utterance, although it concerns unbelievers, it is actually for the benefit of believers. It is the same when you go back to all the prophets, even the Psalms. Prophetic laments. These laments concern people's groups, nations, uh, people depending on their behavior, their conduct or whatever. But rarely are these prophetic utterances actually stated or voiced in the presence of those whom it actually concerns. Why? Because it's not for their benefit. It is actually for the benefit of the people of God. That's what we have here. We have a prophetic lament. James is speaking of these rich unbelievers, and he is saying something concerning their behavior with which he is going to draw this contrast by the time he comes to the seventh verse. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Second thing I want you to notice about the rich is this. Quickly, they're guilty of hoarding their wealth. Second verse, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. In other words, that which you have collected, that which you have gathered, you have actually hoarded. It has served no practical purpose in your life in the present nor the future. And the fact that it is now rotting, the fact that it is now moth-eaten and, and, and full of holes, the fact that it is now corroding, it all testifies to the fact that you are guilty of merely hoarding it. You have collected it for no other purpose than collecting it. Third thing he says is this. They're guilty of oppressing their laborers. Verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Simply put, you have gained your wealth and the principal means by which you have gained it is on the backs of others and through oppressing others, taking advantage of others. Fourth point he makes concerning the rich is this. 
They're guilty of indulging their senses. Fifth verse. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, self-gratification. This next phrase is rather graphic, isn't it? You can picture this stupid animal out there grazing. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. It's the idea of the calf, the pig, the turkey. I don't know. There it is tied to the stake, and all you're doing is feeding it, feeding it, feeding it. Why? Because you've got a date in view, a date when it will be on your dinner table. Uh, That is how these individuals are living in luxury, self-indulgence, and all they're doing is fattening themselves, readying themselves for a day of slaughter. And he says, fifthly, they are guilty of satisfying their cravings. Verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered. In other words, you have done whatever you wanted. You have used, you have employed whatever means accessible to you. And you have done it to get the righteous person out of the way. You have done it to abuse the righteous person, the individual who does not resist you. Because you've had your cravings, your longings, what you want. And you have viewed people merely as a means to an end or a hindrance. And either you have used them or you have rid them, moved them out of your way. But either way, you have been driven by this desire to satisfy your cravings. Did you get the five? Do you want to hear them again? And that is frightening stuff, isn't it? Here it is. They're clearly unbelievers. They're unbelievers. Secondly, they are guilty of hoarding their wealth. Thirdly, they are guilty of oppressing their laborers. Fourthly, they are guilty of indulging their senses. And fifthly, they are guilty of satisfying their cravings. Back to the first verse, the denunciation, come now, you rich. We now know exactly whom James is referring to. Second question is this, what are the miseries that come upon them? Come now, you rich, weep, howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Look at the fourth verse. A couple of things here I do not want you to miss. The first is this. There is a twofold cry in the fourth verse. Here's the first part of the cry. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And so it really is the cry of the wicked. It is the cry of their sin. It is the cry of their injustice. It is the cry of their oppression. That is, they have taken advantage of those under them in order to line their own pockets, to to, to buttress and to live their life of self-indulgence. This has not gone unnoticed, but it has served as a guttural scream that has caught the attention of the Almighty. It is a cry that he hears. But notice the second part of the cry, the remainder of the verse. And the cries of the harvesters. So we had the cry of the wicked. Now we have the cry of the oppressed. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's a little reminiscent. It's a little reminiscence of the Lord walking in the garden, right? And uh, actually, subsequent to the garden, 
Could have gone down that road as well, but let's go down this road. Subsequent to the garden and his encounter with, uh, with Cain. Where is your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What, 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 what was God's response? The cry of his blood. His blood cries to me. The Lord of hosts, the commander-in-chief, the Lord of all angels, all men, all storms, all showers, all planets, all stars, all animals, all birds, all molecules, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of everything. He hears the cry. He hears the cry of the wicked. And he hears the cry of the oppressed. Oh, woe. Talk about prophetic lament out of Isaiah 45. Woe to him who strives with God, the God who formed him. Woe to him. Oh, here James is meditating upon this fact that we are accountable to our maker. We are accountable to our creator. There is one sovereign, one sovereign alone. His name is the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. All things are under his governance. He takes notice of absolutely everything and he hears every heart piercing cry, whether it be the cry of the wicked or the cry of the oppressed. And as a result of these cries, these miseries are coming upon them. When? What miseries? He tells us in the seventh verse, more to, when we get there in a couple of weeks' time, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. Now, what does James mean by that phrase? Now, there's a good question. What does he mean by it? The coming of the Lord. He may very well, you think of the context. He's writing somewhere around 40 AD, right? His principal audience, Christians of a Jewish heritage, city of Jerusalem. And here they are oppressed. Oppressed by whom? Their fellow Jews. And they are the object of persecution. They are the object of oppression. And here he is telling them, look, you need to hold out. You need to remain steadfast. You need to be patient for the, the, the Lord is coming. He may very well have in view what transpires exactly three decades later. He may have that immediate event before him that the Lord of hosts is coming. The Lord of hosts does come, the coming of the Lord. And he comes in the year AD 70 and he takes absolute vengeance upon those who crucified him and mistreated him. It is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And it is the divine reckoning of God and his dealings with those people. It is prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Christ himself foretold it in Matthew's gospel account, Luke's gospel account, that in AD 70, the Lord came and he came in terrible vengeance upon that nation. And remarkably, the Christians left. Remarkably, the Christians in Jerusalem, they'd all left. They had all exited and they were all spared. And the sword fell through the Roman army, the Titus, the general, upon that nation. James may have that immediate event in view. Wait out just a little longer. The Lord is coming. Deliverance is at hand. Or he may very well have something of far greater consequence in view, or it's entirely possible he has both in view. Because the first is a mirror, is it not? It is a foretaste of that coming judgment. That a day known only to the Lord of hosts alone. 
a day marked on his eternal calendar when he will set everything right. Every cry, the cry of the wicked and the cry of the oppressed will be made audible. And those who have lived, as James describes here, the full extent of this misery will fall upon them. There's your answer to the second question. What are the miseries that are in view? The third question is this, and here's where we really strike home. What should we learn from these verses? What would the Spirit of God have us glean from this text? Let me make four points of application, four suggestions, and let me make it clear at the beginning. Number one is the chief point. Number one is the main point of application, yet I'm going to spend the, the, the shortest amount of time on it because we'll come back, Lord willing, in two Sundays and look at what James says in the following verses in detail. But let me just give it to you now. The first point of application, we should be patient as Christians. Oh, we should be patient in the face of injustice. Patient in the face of injustice. There you have it in the seventh verse. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I just said I was going to spend the least amount of time on this, didn't I? Forget I said that. I need to comment on it now. Such patience, steadfastness, endurance, long-suffering. When the object of oppression, uh, perhaps persecution, it is a beautiful thing. It is a marvelous thing. And it is a simply miraculous thing. And we need to make this point, don't we? We, have, we must. It flows from only one fount, right? You think of these cries, this, this dual cry, this cry of the wicked and this cry of the oppressed. And you recall that in Scripture, these two cries are found from one cover to the, to the next. But there's a third cry in Scripture, isn't there? There's a third cry. It's voiced in many different ways and at many different times, but at all times and in all ways, the essence of it is simply this, O Lord, O Lord of hosts, be gracious to me, a sinner. There is the third cry of Scripture. It is a cry that takes some very fundamental truths in view to heart, is it not? The first is this, be, be, be gracious to me, a sinner. And so it is coming to before the Lord of hosts and, and, and it is owning up and it is laying it all bare before him exactly what we are in his sight, sinners. Those who are twisted from birth, twisted, inclined towards sin away from him. Those whose greatest impulse and inclination is to live for self because we are lovers of self. It is to come, it is to take the masks off, it is to cease being a hypocrite, and it is simply to acknowledge, Lord, uh, you know it already. Here is what I am in my essence. And it is crying what? Be gracious to me, O Lord. Be gracious to me, my only plea, my only cry that you would be merciful to me, merciful to me because of the Lord Jesus. Oh, you remember that simple prayer? I think I say it a little different from some of you who learned it when you were children, right? But as I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, take me to heaven for Jesus' sake. That's it. 
for Jesus' sake. Take me to heaven for Jesus' sake. Why? Because he's done it all. Fulfilling the law and living a perfect life of righteousness, obedience, and then suffering that horrendous death upon Calvary's cross where my sin was reckoned to him and he bore the punishment. The punishment due me. He bore it in full. Oh God, be gracious to me, O sinner, for Jesus' sake. You see, when we've come to that point, and we have tasted that God is good, exceedingly good, and his goodness abounds to us in the Lord Jesus, and suddenly we have the big view. We see the big picture. Really, the end from the beginning as Scripture reveals it and portrays it and depicts it for us. Oh, in the gospel and in the shadow of the cross, we find what? That patience. That patience. As we hear the cry of the Lord Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the shadow, the hearing of that cry, we find patience to endure, to wait just a little longer, to hope just a little longer, to endure just a little longer. Why? Oh, the coming of the Lord. We should be patient in the face of injustice. More on that in a couple of weeks. The second lesson we should take from these verses is this. Number two, we should be prepared based on this text. We should be prepared to condemn injustice. There the, James identifies it. There James speaks against it most clearly. He has in view this segment of his society, his day and age. And please remember, it was very different from ours. No middle class in James' days. Either you were part of the ruling elite or you were part of the inconsequential masses. It was one or it was the other. And he has this ruling elite in view. He has these individuals in view in particular who have arrived at where they are, who maintain their position, and they do it by oppressing others. In other words, they have not come by this wealth honestly. They have not come by this wealth as a result of their good sense, their, their being frugal or their hard work. They have simply come by this wealth because they have done so at the expense of others. It is an injustice. And undoubtedly, James railed against it. And we too should learn from that. We should be prepared to condemn injustice. Oh, we could spend a lot of time on this. Economic injustice. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't shy away from looking back. We shouldn't. We should be able to look back, you know, a couple hundred of years and recall slavery in this country. And it may make us feel extremely uncomfortable. But we should be, as Christians, the first to denounce it and continually denounce it and continually denounce it for what it was, a grave economic and social injustice, a, a blight in the history of this nation and in the thinking of Abraham Lincoln, rightly or wrongly, a blight, a mark on this nation the consequence of which was the civil war, God's judgment upon this land, and the blood that flowed as a result. There was the coming of the Lord, the judgment of God, for the, the evil associated with that institution. I, I, 
You know, I, 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 re I read a fair bit on this subject, and I read someone recently, and they were talking, well, you know, you know the slaves, they were like family. They were like family. You can paint it however you want, friend. It's still ugly. Still ugly. You know, and the way some try even to excuse it today and put a slight slant on it and alter it in the light to, you know, try to minimize it. No, it was what it was. It was a terrible injustice. We shouldn't shy away from saying that as Christians. And it should embarrass us. The number of Christians who are part and parcel of it. The number of professing Christians that had a hand in it. Oh, how we should play the ostrich and put our heads in the sand when it comes to shame for our forefathers' involvement in it and blindness to it. I mean, you can fast forward. It's not, it follows on the heels. You can get into, into the Industrial Revolution. Not so much on this side of the Atlantic, although, yes, to some extent. But you go back into England, the days of the Industrial Revo Revolution and the economic injustice, the social injustice, and the way in which women and children were oppressed and taken advantage of all to line people's pockets. I mean, it was deplorable. Absolutely deplorable. It was a revolu revolution driven by greed is what it was. And as Christians, we should not shy away from saying so. You know, we, we, we shop in Walmart or wherever you're shopping these days and we pick up our articles of clothing and we see made in Haiti, made in India, made in Bangladesh. It should make us feel a little uncomfortable. Really? In what conditions? Why? Why made there not here? Who's profiting from that? Exactly what's going on there? Well, this came home in full force as, 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 when, when we, days long ago when we lived in Portugal. The, 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 the little town where, where we lived, it was, a, it was a manufacturing town. And so the, the majority of men I rubbed shoulders with and, and knew well, and believers, godly men, they, they all worked in, in the factories. That's what they did. It was, it was known for, for leather goods. It's production of leather goods. So if you wanted leather gloves, belts, hats, wallets, watch straps, whatever, shoes, especially shoes, it came out of San Juan de Madeira, this little town where we first lived in, in, in Portugal. And, uh, and these guys, I mean, Portugal in those days was a pre-World War II, it was a pre-World War I society in many respects, trapped in, in, a, in a time warp. And uh, really, you only had to go to fourth grade. You only had to go to fourth grade. And fourth grade, you could leave and you could go work in the factories. They wanted you there in the factories. So what are you in fourth grade? Eight years old, nine years old, maybe 10. And this was these guys' life. Imagine, fourth grade, that's their education. And they know, just like their dad, their grandfather before them and so on, they're going into the factory, manufacturing to produce these leather goods. And uh, interesting thing is this. None that I can recall of those companies were actually Portuguese. They were all German, Swiss, and British. Why? Why didn't they manufacture this stuff back home? Because they didn't, could increase their profit margin by manufacturing in Portugal and employing these people at cutthroat rates, right? And if anybody ever complained, what did they do? They shut down the factory. You're all out of jobs. Three days later, they would reopen and rehire people. And this was the system in which these young men found themselves. That was deplorable. It was a deplorable economic system. That, that was capitalism run amok. Oh, we're for a compassionate capitalism, are we not? A compassionate, benevolent capitalism. But this capitalism free market economy that is driven by basic greed is a mark upon our society, a blight upon our society. And as Christians, we should be the first to denounce it. As Christians, we should be the first to call it out. Greed is greed, however you dress it up. Whatever, it's still, it's like, what did I hear recently? I love it. 
It's put lipstick on a pig, isn't it? You can dress it up. You can do with it what you want. It still is what it is, greed. Oh, how Christians, we should be the first to speak out against it and convey the dignity of man and the image of God in man and condemn injustice wherever it is found. Thirdly, we should be careful how we treat others. We should learn that from these verses. We certainly should be very careful if we're on that other end. I don't think anyone in this room is going to have their grass cut this afternoon. At the end of the day, we'll withhold the wages of that individual who mowed your lawn, unless it's a family member, maybe, but that's okay. They're they're earning their house and keep. But, uh, you know, I I doubt anybody's going to do that today or did that yesterday. But there's still some very practical application here, is there not, when it comes to how we treat others, how we employ others. Uh, oh, I'm really going down memory lane today. Forgive me, but, uh, you know, I, I have shared this with you before. I'm a roofer by trade. I like to think I still am, although I, I couldn't, my knees wouldn't let me do a roof today. But uh, through high school, through college, my summers, roofing. When we were first married, roofing. Putting the shingles on the roof. And my, uh, my employer, all those years, um, a believer in the church, members of the same church together, and uh, a humble man, and a very patient, a patient man. But uh, there were times when he would lose it. He would lose it. <laughs> there were certain things that would, would drive him uh, crazy around the bend. One thing that would drive him crazy is upon completing a job, the number of people who wouldn't pay him right away. I'll get you next week. Checks in the mail. What about the end of the month when I get paid? Is there some sort of an installment plan? Meanwhile, my employer, what has he done? He has invested in materials. He has invested in his employees. He has put out $1,000, $2,000, maybe $3,000 to get this job. And then upon completion, it's this delay. Uh, it's the, this, this delay. And the number of Friday nights, I can remember him sheepishly going to a door and knocking on that door. Are you going to pay? And the, and the number of times I can remember him coming back, smoke coming out of his ears, and it would really drive him batty. You know when? When it was a Christian. It was a Christian who should have known better. Uh, but uh, taking advantage and delaying payment for someone who had actually invested in completing a job, I think that fits into this text. It's taking advantage, economic advantage of a position in someone else's desperation and vulnerability. The other thing that would drive him crazy is the whole bidding process. And so he would get the call, and there he would go, and he would submit his bid. And, uh, you know, the best he could, a a fair price. And he understood multiple bids. It is a competitive market that is healthy, that is good. But what would drive him crazy is when he knew an individual was soliciting a bid with no intention of accepting the bid. They They simply wanted the bid to use it as leverage with somebody else. So he's out what? He's out time. Time is money. Time is family. And yet someone is taking advantage of his goodwill, his good business practices for their own economic advantage. So I can save 100 bucks, 200 bucks, because I can show your bid to the next guy and he'll underbid you by $100. Oh, look, I'm saving money. And how it used to drive him crazy when it was Christians doing it. And there he was in his evenings trying to get work for his family, And because he worked during the day, out in the evening, soliciting jobs, putting in these bids, 
and uh, people taking advantage of a system. Oh, my friends, do not think we are above and beyond what is described in this text. Described in this text. We need to be careful. We should be careful, extremely careful, how we treat others. And fourthly, here's where we're going to camp out next five minutes and wrap it up. Fourthly, we should be sensitive to the implied warnings in these verses. There are two. Two warnings concerning wealth. The first is this. How we view it. How do we view wealth? And the text I'm thinking of comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I challenge you this afternoon. Well, not everybody, not everybody. If you're still capable of riding a bike, I challenge you to get a bicycle. You get on that bicycle and you've gone just maybe 20 feet and then try staring off to the right and hold it for 10 seconds and see where you end up. On second thought, don't try that. I'll tell you where you'll end up. You'll end up veering way off to the right in all sorts of trouble. We go wherever we're looking. We head in the direction that has captured our gaze, our attention. That is the point Jesus is making. Wherever your treasure is, your heart is, that's where you're looking. And my friend, that is where you're going. That is the direction you're heading in. And woe to us if our treasure is fixed on wealth. It's like Lot's wife, isn't it? There she was, leaving, fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah. And from behind, she looked back, turned into a pillar of salt. Why did she look back? Because that's where her treasure was. Her treasure wasn't moving ahead with the people of God. Her treasure was looking back to what she thought she had in Sodom and Gomorrah and what it cost her. Now, one preacher describes it as follows. Recently, recently my family played Monopoly. A very, a very pertinent illustration here. Recently, my family played Monopoly which was the first time I've played it in 15 years. Before long, a bit of the old excitement and enthusiasm, but I have no problem playing Monopoly. That's not the point of this. Before long, a bit of the old excitement and enthusiasm came back, especially as I began to win. Everything went my way. And I became master of the board. I owned Boardwalk and Park Place. I had houses and hotels all over the place. My family was squirming. And I was stuffing $500 bills into my pockets under the board and seat. Suddenly the game was over. I had won. Shirley and the kids went to bed and I began putting everything back into the box. Then I was struck by an awful empty feeling. All of the excitement I had experienced earlier was unfounded. I didn't own any more than those whom I had defeated. It all had to go back into the box. The Lord showed me that there was a lesson to be learned beyond the game of Monopoly. I recognize that I was also witnessing the game of life. We struggle, we accumulate, we buy, we own, we possess, we refinance. And suddenly, we come to the end of life. And it all has to go back into the box. It all goes back into the box. I've said on a number of occasions that James is very proverbial, isn't he? It's like a, a, a New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. Let me go back to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And you can try to find these references later. A little game here. I'm not going to give you the exact chapter, chapter and verse. You can try to find them later. You can do your own study. But you go back to the book of Proverbs, and according to that book, here, here is, is, is of what is, what's of greater value than riches, than wealth. Here we go. Number one, 
Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues. Number two, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure. Better, number three, is a dish of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Number four, how much better to get wisdom than gold. Wisdom, better than gold. Number five, there is abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Number six, it is better to be of a lowly spirit, humble with the poor, than to divide the spoil with the proud. Seven, better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Number eight, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Number nine, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And number 10, an echo of number eight, an excellent wife who can find. She is more precious than jewels. How do we view wealth? Do we view it as Scripture views it? Do we truly treasure those things which are of supreme importance in the sight of God? The second warning is this, how we hold it. Turn to 1 Timothy real quick. Just a couple of passages let me comment on this briefly, and you can meditate on it further on your own. First Timothy 6, Paul has a great deal to say along the same lines as James here in this epistle. First Timothy 6, look at what he says firstly in the ninth verse. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Be careful. The point is not the extent of one's wealth. Did you hear me? The point is not the extent of one's wealth. It is the attitude of one's heart. The point is not the extent of one's wealth. This applies as much to the individual as $2 million as the individual only has $200. It is not the extent of one's wealth. It is the attitude of one's heart. Oh, how do we hold what we have? Here's how we should hold it. Same chapter, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Again, referring to the book of Proverbs, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Still out of the book of Proverbs, 
Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. And much, much more could be said along these lines. Much, much more I had to say. But let me end it. I think it's fitting with this. You have it there in your sermon notes. It's a little quote down there hidden away at the bottom of the page in the church bulletin from Kevin Day Young. I think this is a a tremendous statement, pithy statement, when it comes to how we hold possessions, riches. Kevin Day Young says the following. With this, we'll close. Christian, enjoy them the most. No problem. Need them the least. And give them away most freely. I think that is a tremendous summary of the teaching of Scripture when it comes to what a compassionate heart looks like in terms of our possessions. We enjoy them the most. We need them the least. And we give them away most freely. Our great God in heaven above. Take now, we pray, uh, your word and apply it to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl gathered in this place. Uh, We ask it for our edification and our further transformation into the likeness of your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. And we ask it for the glory of your your great name. Uh, Convict us where conviction is necessary. Comfort us where comfort is lacking. And we ask it in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.